This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, we have Angie Maxwell and Todd Shields, authors of the new book, The Long Southern Strategy. They will talk to me about how the Republican Party took over the South after decades of Democratic control. The history is a bit more complex than what you usually hear about. And with the 2010s coming to a close, I'll talk about why this decade should be known as the Facebook decade. And now, the Nexus. In recent weeks, Kentucky and Louisiana both elected Democratic governors, and last year, a black female Democratic woman came this close to winning the U.S. Senate seat in deep South Georgia. Let's not forget there is a Democrat right now sitting in the Senate from the hallmark of the Confederacy, Alabama. Yet there was a time when the solid South belonged to the Democratic Party, and it would be odd to think of Republicans in charge there. Now it's the opposite. Why did this change occur, and might we be in the midst of a breakthrough for the Democratic Party? There is a new book out titled The Long Southern Strategy, which details how the Republican Party made it a strategic point to win over the South from the Democrats. The effects of this strategy we are living with today, for better or for worse. I'm joined by the authors of The Long Southern Strategy. Angie Maxwell is the director of the Diane D. Blair Center of Southern Politics and Society, associate professor of political science and holder of the Diane D. Blair Endowed Professorship in Southern Studies at the University of Arkansas. Todd Shields is dean of the J. William Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, also at the University of Arkansas. Angie Maxwell and Todd Shields, welcome to the Nexus. Thank you for having us. We're excited. Angie, let me start with you. I think many Americans have heard the term the Southern strategy, at least if they follow politics. But I think a lot of people falsely believe that in the civil rights era, the two major parties switched with the party originally upholding slavery, now the party of civil rights, and the party of Lincoln, now anti-civil rights. What is the actual long Southern strategy? Well, the, you know, kind of the story that we all know, I kind of call it the short Southern strategy in my mind, um, is what you just said, that the parties um, move in different directions on race. It's not so much that they switch. I mean, they're they're pretty even in terms of their policies um, at the national level, right? In the in the late '40s and you know in the 1950s in their platforms, but as the Democratic National Party starts moving away from its kind of southern southern base and embracing some pro civil rights, you know, changes, um, there was a faction within the Republican Party that starts to think hey, we might be able to pick up these disaffected Southern voters. I mean, just kind of like all the armchair election analysis we all do, like, ooh, should we try to get millennials? Should we? What groups should we target, right? It was kind of just that for a while, a faction going, you know, maybe we should look at this, right? Mm-hmm. But then Eisenhower, I mean, Eisenhower sends in the troops in Little Rock. I mean, you know, so the Republican Party was still very you know, progressive and supportive of civil rights, but that faction gains power and gets their nominee in in 1964 with Goldwater. 
And that was very deliberate. The group that was behind Go Water had originally thought about Orville Faubus, um, who, of course, was the Little Rock, gov- I mean, the Arkansas governor who, you know, prevented the Little Rock Nine from entering Central High School. So Goldwater's picked and we see, for example, 87% of Mrs. You know, Mississippi voters switch and become Republican um, and vote for the Republican candidate, which is dramatic, you know, change for that state. So, Mm -hmm. but the problem is, is that's kind of where we stop. We say, okay, Goldwater and the Nixon really tweaks this appeal. um, And then the South turns red, but the South goes back to blue in 1976 under Jimmy Carter. And so the Republican Party is really at a loss and there's a big fight within it on do we keep pursuing these Southern votes or do we just like that was a that was a mistake, you know, and do we go a different direction? Um, And the group that was pushing to keep trying to win the South um, won out and also said, let's expand beyond race. How else can we get some of these? Southern whites, and they figure out by dropping the Equal Rights Amendment, they can actually get a lot of Southern white women to support the party because they were kind of part of the anti-feminist movement. When Bill Clinton, as a Democrat, and wins five Southern states back um, and starts to lead in some others, Republican Party goes kind of back to the drawing board again, dukes it out and decides the group that wins decides they're going to really try to push on white evangelicals Mm -hmm. um, and win their votes. And so it's been this long arc. It hasn't been this instant flip or quick flip. And, and it involves a lot more than just race, you know, but it starts there. So that's kind of the long Southern stage. We've sketched that out and what that's done to the party's, over time into the electorate and really what gives rise to Trump. Right. Um, And do you feel Todd, why we're talking about, Angie was talking mainly about going after, I would assume mostly, if not all white voters, if that's correct. correct. Why did the GOP not have a separate strategy to go after black voters, you know, in a different way, perhaps. Was this decision not to do so based on racism or just not believing they can get African-Americans to vote Republican? Well, there was, there's actually in 64 and in 68 at the Republican National Conventions, there's a lot of infighting that's going on uh, because the Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party did have the argument that they could win elections if they continued to pursue African-American voters, immigrants, inner city type party of Lincoln strategy. Um, If you listen to those debates, you can hear Nelson Rockefeller even getting booed and cheered. Um, In both 64 and 68, that wing of the Republican Party really lost the battle. In in 68, um, Nixon, and this is something that happened in every part of the waves of the long Southern strategy, there were lots of data that was collected. by one Kevin Phillips, who wrote a book, The Emerging Republican Majority, um, came to the 68 convention just armed with reams and reams of data way before surveying and, you know, that type of thing was very popular in campaigning. And uh, they were able to convince a lot of people that this once solidly Democratic South was angry enough 
that with with Nixon and the right strategy, they could get a lot of Democratic votes and then win the Electoral College. And I think that's a key point, and that is there. It's it's not necessarily a national popular vote strategy. It's an Electoral College strategy. Yeah, it's it's the map, and and it's also. I mean, Nixon when he ran in sixty, right? When he ran in sixty and lost to Kennedy, had you know, Kennedy had really pulled the African-American vote. And so that was the debate is like, okay, do we go try to correct that or do we go pursue these kind of disaffected white Southerners? So is that based on like this internal racism? I would never, you know, I don't, I wouldn't have the data to, you know, indicate that at that time it was, it was kind of group politics, right? Like which group do we go after? And it was by no means, Unanimous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, Angie, would you say, you said earlier about Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton got elected president, and they Bill Clinton even picked up a few southern states. Did... Uh, ha- you talked about the the internal wrangling going on, but how did Carter and Clinton do that? If the train was going sort of in a certain direction and then these two came and were able to get Southern states, how did that even happen? Well, with Carter, it happened because, well, with both of them, but more so, even so with Carter, because he, they, he was one of them. And that's the whole thing about why we measure in this book, not just Southern by geography, which is, of course, what matters for an electoral map, but Southern identity. So Southern white identities as such a powerful construct, right, that there was a belief that the very best protection, if I'm a Southern white, particularly, you know, born again, you know, believer and that's how I identify that someone like me is the very best protection of the things that I want. Right. And so Jimmy Carter, it felt like that. Right. But of course, Carter's policies, you know, the fact that he really kind of believed in a separation of church and state. I mean, that's not what the early, you know, some of the more politicized evangelicals that early on politicized, They were not happy about that. They assumed because he was like them that he must do the same thing. They projected that onto him. And the same thing with Bill Clinton. He sounded like them. He talked like them. And of course, he benefited even more so from Ross Perot in the race because, you know, a lot of, a lot of Southern white Southerners might've voted Republican, then came back and voted Democrat voted, you know, back and forth like we show, but identifying, like switching your party ID was a much slower process. And when they could switch to an independent first, right, or become an independent first and then maybe support independent candidate, it was kind of like a transition in that realignment. So Perot and even Anderson, you know, in in 80, get a big chunk too. And that combined with the white Southerners who had already switched Republican, let Bill Clinton without 50%, you know, still win a couple of Southern states. And he was trending, pulling back some folks in his, when he was running for reelection. Um, 
but I mean, by no means is it like, like Jimmy Carter who wins across the South. So it's cause they're one of them. And it's because this Southern strategy was a work in realignment was a slow kind of work in progress and that Republicans had to keep fine tuning it. I find that so interesting for a number of reasons, because you're talking about they're more interested or had been more interested in the identity than the policies, which I would argue today, and maybe you could tell me I'm wrong, wouldn't happen so much. Maybe it would, but I look at the example of, um, I'm Catholic, and I remember when John Kerry was running, having at my church how there was so many folks who were intensely against him and he was a Catholic himself and were going for the Protestant George W. Bush, of course, was the incumbent. And I thought in the earlier time, Catholics would have voted very close to their religion. You're totally and, right. And and I wonder, and I, and I, when you just moments ago said about you know, Southern identity. I'm wondering why that's the case and why for other identities that doesn't seem to happen. Well, it, and I'll tell you this real quick, and I know Todd will want to jump in. The You're right. That's how it used to be, right? And that only works, that only happens that you would choose the kind of person you identify with, Southern identity, even if their policies are different. If the landscape is confusing, because it was in the middle of realignment. You didn't even have, you had still Democrats running at the local level, you know, in lots of places. Arkansas didn't flip Republican at the state level till 2014 hmm. in the state legislature. We had a popular Democratic governor five years ago, hmm. you know, in the 70% approval ratings. And so it took a long time for kind of that top level change to trickle down to the local. So someone standing in the middle of that, in the middle of the shift, things just kind of look purple and the parties aren't well de delineated. Mm -hmm. And so you go like, well, that guy pulls, I mean, that guy's like one of us, right? Now, what happens after Clinton is that the kind of push for Christian nationalism, which is kind of the last piece of this long Southern strategy, um, it pulls together a non-denominational kind of pro-Christian nationalist wing, which pulled a ton of Catholics, not all by any means, but a ton of Catholics in line with Southern Baptists, in line with, you know, fundamentalists across the board and in line with Mormons, honestly. And that starts back with the equal rights and anti-equal rights, you know, stuff, but it merges so much that now the push is all, is less on the identity, so to speak, right? And more on will they do what we want them to do? So we show in the book, Jimmy Carter was such a disappointment to the evangelicals, right? Mm -hmm. That they abandoned him and they go for Reagan. But then they're also disappointed. They think Reagan only pays lip service to their wants. So they run their own guy and Pat Robertson, but he can't get enough traction. <laughs> and so then they decide, you know, we don't care who the person is, if they'll do what we say. And that's a major shift. 
And right. that's how somebody like Mitt Romney, who's a Mormon, was still able to pull so many Southern Baptist evangelicals, even hardcore ones. And it's why Donald Trump, even though less than 40% of Southern fundamentalists say he's a Christian, <laughs> still vote for him. They, it doesn't matter to them if he is anymore. They played that game and they got burned by Carter. Mm. And so now it is, will you do the actions? Just like any other political interest group, we just expect it not to be. Does that make sense? It sure does. It sure does. Okay. Absolutely. And um, and Todd, I want to kind of push that that idea a little bit more that Angie started with. Um, in my estimation, it appears that the Southern Baptist Convention was a bit more liberal in the past, but then along the way, it became quite conservative, fundamentalist. This has just been my perception, though, but I wonder if you could outline the evolution and the impact that has had on politics. Sure, absolutely. So um, in the 60s and 70s, the SBC was actually much more uh, moderate to liberal than they were now, and they were allowing um, you know, women into seminaries. Um, and in the late 1970s, there were a couple of people that really felt like the SBC should be very literal um, interpretation of the Bible, very fundamentalist in their views. Um, and if you look into those, those uh, documents, you can see that there was a real hostile takeover. Um, and then after the takeover, anyone who was moderate or anyone who was liberal was really pushed out in a way. And there's actually some, th some writings of the moderates that were in the Baptist um, convention that were felt really rejected by uh, the religion that they grew up in and the religion that they loved. But after that takeover, the, the rightward swing of the Southern Baptist convention continued um, and like Angie was saying, they, they tried what I, I like to call the theological litmus test, right? They like to, do you believe what we believe? And if you do, then we're going to support you, um, to the, to the point where they're like, look, we're in this political game to win. Um, we're tired of just being courted instead of just being a power player. And so they are, they've shifted, like Angie said, a lot of groups have to, they're going to support the person that's going to support the positions that they want. So like you said, there, there are very much issue position driven things here, um, but that that is where we are today. But but the long Southern strategy began with this focus on the identity. Right, right. And I, I want to um, go back a, a little bit to what we were talking about in the beginning. Obviously, the long Southern strategy is earlier than the 1960s and whatnot. If there is a time period, a decade or an era that you could point to all of this starting to try to make this kind of alignment in the South, where might it be? Well, <coughs> you know, I would stretch it back, I guess. Oh, I mean, we always know looking from the FDR coalition, you know, with the hindsight, we know that that's, um, you know, that's not sustainable, that you have these kind of Southern Democrats and you're pulling in African-Americans and you're pulling in labor and all of this. These are groups that are kind of fundamentally opposed, but they're in a crisis of the depression. Right. right. And so there's it's like that's tension, but you kind of don't know how it's going to you don't even know what the Republican Party is going to be after so many terms of Democrat. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's, there's, you know, it's kind of waned and you're not sure what's going to happen when FDR dies and Truman comes in. 
um, and then runs, decides to run again in 48, and the Southern Democrats walk out of the 1948 convention um, and decide they're so angry that it's going to be Truman. And because Truman, of course, had integrated the army, but he'd also been the first president to give a speech to the NAACP. Hmm. And that speech was very progressive. And it did not pull any punches about what he meant by equality for all citizens. And so they walk out thinking these, and they'll become called the Dixiecrats, as you well know, thinking that if they run a third party ticket, it's going to, they don't expect to win, but it's going to create no majority in the electoral college, which would throw it into the House of Representatives. Hmm. And in the House of Representatives, the Southern Bloc had a lot of power because it was so unified. Right. They also just wanted the Democratic Party to see you cannot win without us. So you better backtrack. Right. Hmm. And the problem is they, you know, they run Strom Thurmond as president in South Carolina. The problem is, is that, you know, Truman ekes it out anyway. And. There's a lot of reasons. They had very little time to get organized between the convention and the vote um, that they didn't do better. The Dixiecrats, they did win some Southern states, but he still was able to eke out electoral college victory. And so then they're in kind of a purgatory of sorts because their big gamble hasn't worked. And they keep applying pressure the best they can to the Democratic Party to kind of pull back. Mm -hmm. And but they and there there's some folks that are looking at you know some early republican candidates wondering if they could be interested in that you know in, the, in that group bob taft you know was a big pull but doesn't win the nomination it goes to eisenhower and then of course when eisenhower sends in the troops it's like that doesn't look like a republican party that's going to appeal to these white southern segregationists. So they're really stuck. Yeah. You know, in between. And it's not until Nixon runs a pro-civil rights campaign as a Republican in 60 and loses that a wing in the Republican Party starts going, we have to, we really have to do something here. We really have to find a candidate. We're going to have to find votes somewhere else. Um, Kennedy has sewn up the black vote is what they thought. And it's what Goldwater actually said. He said, as a senator, before he's a candidate, you know, you've got to go hunting where the ducks are. Um, <laughs> and those white Southerners were the ducks. And mm. it's, it's really one group. And at the same time, within the Republican Party, not just the Rockefeller wing, but there was the Rip-On Society group that formed at Harvard and MIT. And it was, you know, kind of these Republican intellectuals conservative intellectuals trying to stop this, say, this is a mistake. You know, we don't want to be that party. Right. We just lost out. Well, and they didn't necessarily, that wing didn't necessarily even disappear because even in around when, when George W. Bush was president, you know, Ken Melman, the head of the RNC there starts trying to go, we're going to apologize for the Southern strategy. And his strategy was he wanted to go back to this party of Lincoln 
um, and reach out to African Americans and Hispanic voters in a in a long term strategy of governing mm-hmm. where the country was going. But once again, the the there were others in the Republican Party that wanted to go different ways, and then they have generally won. Yeah, and it, we go we can't like not say this because it's just too crazy, but. It's some of the same strategists, campaign to campaign, that are pushing this. So, who runs night? You know, Ronald Reagan's nineteen eighty campaign, which they decide to launch in Mississippi at the Neshoba County Fair, where Reagan talks about states' rights. Ronald law Reagan, and right, and law and order. Paul Manafort. You know, <laughs> who makes the Willie Horton ad? That's Roger Ailes, Fox News. Mm. Right. It's been a group from Lee Atwater and the Harry Dents. And, you know, all the way to Karl Rove and some of them have been loosely affiliated. Some of them have been in practice together in partnership. But most Republican candidates, if they've gotten the nomination, even if they're skeptical about those tactics, they kind of want them on the inside as opposed to fighting them. Right. And so it depends on how much leeway that kind of gang of strategists has been given. You know, I mean. John McCain wouldn't do it. And Mitt Romney kind of wouldn't do it. Bob Dole wouldn't play this kind of racial resentment, sexism, and kind of Christian nationalism. They really kind of wouldn't do it, and they lost. Now, that's not the only reason they lost, but it makes it look like this strategy is what wins, right? So when, when Donald Trump all of a sudden hired Paul Manafort, who we knew had been in the Ukraine for like a decade, doing this same thing, by the way, <laughs> kind of same tactics. Um, I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, <laughs> really? <laughs> so crazy. And then you've got Roger Stone, too. And Roger Stone was Nixon's 68 advisor. Right. Um, and then he's involved in the Trump campaign, too. So they really, even when we first started writing this book, I was still thinking that Trump was not a serious candidate. But then when they were hiring these people that we knew had had really successful campaigns in the past, I started going, well, we may need to think about this differently. Yeah. And we started writing this before Trump was even on the on the horizon. It was more this has been what's happened and the American people have sorted themselves accordingly. And that's why we're in this hyperpolarized state. And then, you know, Trump comes along and. Um, kind of illustrates it, and he's willing to play the he's willing to play this strategy in a way uh, in an intensity that previous candidates were not willing to do. Right, right. And wh- since we're on the topic of him, let's let's talk about him for a minute. Um, obviously, you just said a minute ago that Romney, Bob Dole, John McCain—they were all much more moderate in lots of positions, and certainly on racial and sexism types of um, questions. But then comes Donald Trump, who, as you said, people were dismissing, laughing at, there was no chance he was going to win. But yet he has inspired such a devotion and a reverence. Some would say it's a cult-like devotion. And is this the kind of saint from heaven, to, to go back to religious references, that Southerners have been waiting for? Well, I mean, if you go look at if you go look at the primary vote in the South, because, you know, this is when we had the SEC primary. Right. It's all going to be on the same day. And I remember talking to a reporter that day and they were like, who do you think it's going to be Trump? And they thought I was crazy. (laughs) That was going to be Ted Cruz. And I said, no, you don't understand. His last name is Cruz. Ah. 
And, and I mean that seriously, because that we're talking about small margins here. So if you really push some anti-immigrant kind of tone and, you know, kind of distrust of people with any kind of, you know, Latinx sounding last name, you know, it's going to shave off just enough. Mm. Right. And especially in a crowded field where a lot of the Republican primaries are winner take all. And so Trump doesn't get more than like mid thirties in a lot of states, but because there's so many other candidates and it's all fractured, right? Mm -hmm. He picks up and it's all on one day and you hear Trump wins Georgia, Trump wins Arkansas. It starts to kind of affect the electorate and feel like, okay, this is what's, this is what's happening. That group that voted for him in the primary, that is who has stuck with him Mm -hmm. like crazy. You know, Mm -hmm. that's your mid thirties kind of support. It has galvanized some others who were probably non-voters. Um, and they are given disproportionate power in the Republican primary system because their base of the GOP are those Southern states. And especially when they put all of the primaries on the same day, right? Mm -hmm. They've been there all along, right? They've been there all along and they roll out. They really, their turnout, the identifying as Southern, like really drove up turnouts. If you look at those percentages, Mm -hmm. which we, you know, talk about in the book. So I think Trump excited them, right? In that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think some people have been added, but. Most of the national polling, when it does Trump's approval, the gender gap, all of those things, they never break it up by region. Right. And, you you know, we show in the book, for example, and this relates back to the part, the long Southern strategy about, you know, sexism, is Hillary Clinton, you know, won white women out. Of course, she won women of color, but she won white women outside of the South. She lost white women in the South by almost 30 points. Wow. That's two different realities, right? But people don't, don't kind of break that. And if you did, you'd see a lot of Trump's hardcore that's really at that election affecting level are in those Southern states. Hmm. And Todd, let me continue with you for a moment. Um, as I mentioned at the top, there have been some democratic inroads in recent years. Um, and I know Georgia has been primed by Democrats as a possibility to flip along with Texas. Is an actual change going on? Well, I, I think that there's some swings that are happening, but I, but I, I, I want to also talk about Trump's support in the aftermath of you know President Obama being the first African-American president and then Hillary Clinton being the first female at the head of the ticket of one of the two major parties, you know, there's, there's this fear. I mean, when we ask people if the country's going in the right direction or how are they doing and what do they think is going to happen in the future, the people who are the most afraid are often some of the people who are the most well off and they're mostly white people and, and white women as well. And so, you know, in the context of this country is changing, you know, one of the arguments we make in the book is that the Republican Party just didn't court the South. The Republican Party became Southern. Hmm. And, and I know that Donald Trump is not a Southerner, but in many ways, 
he portrays that defiance to the national government um, in your face. I'm going to, you know, punch you before I explain it. It's my way, the highway. And it's very Texan. It's very rugged. And it's very appealing. I do think we're going to see backlashes. We're going to see um, people fighting back. We've seen in Arkansas some women who have won, won election here on the local level. Um, but I don't know how far that's really going to go just because I do see support for Trump remaining solid. And then even with people who are in independence, they're not moving away from him at all. Yeah. And it just depends on the composition of the state, right? So Georgia, if you can build a coalition where Democrats can win, if there is a high enough population of, you know, citizens of color and there are young people who are registered and galvanized and you add that to, you know, the percentage that is white Southern Democrats, because there are some, right? Mm -hmm. You build that coalition and you can defeat it. But coalition building is so much harder than appealing to kind of one common denominator and a homogenous group. And that is the difference, mm -hmm. right? The Republican Party takes these positions over 40 years and the American people sort themselves accordingly. And one group looks very similar, right? Mm. One party is a lot more homogenous than another, which means an appeal that hits to all of that group is easier to find and easier to articulate, right? It's much harder when you're the party of kind of pluralism to then find a common denominator to pull everybody into a campaign. But it is what you believe, you know, it is what the party stands for. So that's part of that complexity. And in Georgia, they've done an incredible job and in Texas, too. And I think that will pay dividends. It's just going to take a while. Right. All of Stacey Abrams data, all of the infrastructure she built. They will keep building onto that. That's what Republicans did. They didn't win right mm -hmm. out right. in a lot of these Southern races, mm -hmm. you know, at the state level and the local level, they just built. And so I do see that. I do see them building an infrastructure in Texas and Georgia. And honestly, in North Carolina, um, North Carolina hasn't had such a big kind of celebrity not celebrity but a candidate the media fell like really in love with like they did with beto and stacy abrams but their infrastructure strong and virginia has been doing it for almost 12 years which we saw the dividends it paid correct but, you, but there are other states where that is not being built you know southern states and and uh, sometimes that is because demographically right they the coalition is just not there or the Republicans have been in charge and they're so in charge. They're so dominant that um, there's been no competition. You know, nobody's even run. Um, nobody's even competed. And that means you don't have any data. I mean, you really don't. So it's, it, it's going to be a much longer road for the bulk of the Southern States, but there are some big ones that I, I'm going to see. We're going to see it pay off. We're going to see those things change. I think. And I think, I think one of the jarring things for me in this book is that the long Southern strategy reinforces women 
mm-hmm. playing second fiddle to men in accordance with so-called gender roles. A- as a Yankee myself, I find this hard to understand, really. <laughs> but how, how has this worked in the South? Well, well, Angie's speaking as a as a Southern woman. I'm from New Jersey, so I probably should let her talk. Well, on this, one. <laughs> this is this is how I've. I mean, this is this is how the book started. Is that is the huge, enormous hole in the scholarship about Southern white women? Just it's just there's just nothing, and so in their politics and their vote and polling of them. I mean, there's just nothing. There's literary criticism about it. There's some socio. There's a little bit of sociology and anthropology, but I mean, it is so thin. There's history. There's some history of progressive, like the women who broke out of this, like the anti-lynching, you know, women of the early 20th century, things like that. But there's really not an understanding of what is the default, which is this kind of Southern white woman on a pedestal concept. and. Mm-hmm. So that whole middle section of the book really traces that back where it comes from, how it gets built, and it has long-term ramifications. And the people who figured that out were the Republicans because when the anti-ERA movement kicked into gear, Phyllis Schlafly from, you know, St. Louis, but working with Lottie Beth Hobbs, who was a woman who was part of the Southern Baptist <coughs> Convention who started the group WWWW, which stood for Women Who Want to Be Women, <laughs> right, and pushed against the ERA, they convinced, in what's called the pink paper, they convinced women that the ERA, Southern white women, that the ERA was going to require them to work, right? It was going to be a mandate. You read that document and it's just false, you know, and it taps into their deepest fears, right? Mm-hmm. Because there was not institutional support for what you were going to do with your children if you went to work. There was um, status, mm-hmm. you know, anxiety mm-hmm. about having to be a woman that worked, right? There was racial um, anxiety about it was African-American women who worked, right? Not mm-hmm. white women, right? They had African-American women work for them. Even very barely middle-class women would have some kind of domestic help, right? Um, And so the idea that that was going to happen and change the expectations of their lives, right, really uh, just set something afire. And if you look at the history of the ERA, I mean, as you know, it passes Congress like 90% of the vote in the House and Senate. It's totally bipartisan. The Republicans are the first to put it in their platform, um, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then all of a sudden, and it passes, you know, 30 states in a year ratified. It just seems like the momentum, you know, it's unstoppable. And then it stops and it really stops and it stops in the South. And the anti-ERA forces really played up the, you know, woman on a pedestal kind of ideology and that feminist you know, we're all waspy, you know, college educated, white, snobby women who looked down on all these women and their choices and thought they were stupid and all of this. And when you do that in a region that has just gone through the changes of integration, I mean, in Georgia, the women would chant, we don't want, don't desexigrate. Yeah, they played on those words. So, there is this anxiety, like, 
it changes the expectations of women if all of a sudden there's women leading in politics. And that hits at a very, very, very deep personal place that we don't study, we don't articulate. Um, and the GOP polls 40,000 American women 1980. in 1980 and sorts them into 64 categories, calls each one Nancy's, Betty's, Helen's. <laughs> and they figure out they can win the white women voters they need in the states they need if they drop it. And so they drop it from the platform in 1980. And, you know, I'd, I'd just add that, you know, the Phyllis Schlafly's big push of stop ERA was, you know, stop taking our privileges was the acronym. And, you know, coming to Arkansas from the North, it was a shock to me to see that there, there is, there's an aspirational goal, even of people, even of women who are in very low classes, an aspirational goal is that, I will stay home and I will be the Southern belle who's put up on a pedestal and taken care of. That's a privilege that many of them still shoot for. Yeah. Aspire to if they're, and I, I'm not judging that because if you're working a dead end minimum wage job where the minimum wage hadn't gone up in 30 years, you know, and it's not a meaningful work or career and you're, you have children that you're having to have somebody take care. I get why it would be aspirational, sure, um, sure. but it's been institutionalized here in the way we educate girls in institutions like sorority, you know, and in all of it, right. It's been very institutionalized down here so much so that people don't even see it um, a lot of times. And I would say that, Feminism here has really not been framed as choice. It's been framed as feminism means you will not have a choice. So feminism right. means your aspirations you will not be able to get as opposed to you will have a choice about what you want to do. Um, and so coming here, the idea and the interpretation and the feelings associated with feminism were very different. And then it all got reinforced at the church at the exact same timing when the SBC, when the fundamentalists take over the SBC. And then they kick all the women out of seminary and they re-put it into their, you know, doctrine that women, you know, submission. are submission, doctrine of wifely submission. And, and you got a big chunk of the region that's going and hearing that, right? And of course, it's always been that way in the Catholic Church in terms of its hierarchy. Sure. You know? And so that all reinforces, you know, that culture. Perfect storm. And 75% of white women voted against Stacey Abrams, against her. 75% in Georgia. That is staggering. I mean, that is just such an interesting, and, and that's, and I think so many people were mystified. I don't think a lot of people knew that detail, but I know a lot of people knew the detail about white working class women in the South, or I mean, at least white women yeah. in the South w voting for Trump, not just working mm -hmm. class, even, you know, educated class right. and and whatnot and I, I know there was so much shaking heads like scratching heads like how, how is this even possible but the way you're describing it, it it's very possible yeah it's very possible I mean when you develop that idea and you've developed that idea of southern white femininity all the way back to antebellum times when as a faux justification for white supremacy Right. So these white and violence, these white men have to protect these delicate white women, the chivalry and honor and all that stuff. And it's just the lie people tell themselves 
to rationalize and make okay the way they're treating African-American and particularly African-American men who are criminalized and demonized by this setup. Mm-hmm. And so, but, but that, so that image of what is the thing to aspire to as a Southern white woman, it's not that it remains unchanged, of course, right? But it's that it gets institutionalized. It's how the schools develop and curriculums develop and camps develop oh, and church develops and just kind of all of it. The beauty pageant culture, the, you know, all of that, you know, is built on that kind Very of tall. notion. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just don't see people pick at it. And no one has noticed that the gender gap is either non-existent or sometimes reversed in mm-hmm. this part of the country. And so you take the South out and you've got a much bigger gender gap in favor of Democrats outside of the region. Um, it's just not something people kind of noticed and studied. I watched the 2018 midterms knowing that I knew, I mean, Beto was, I did not think would win. Stacey Abrams, I thought was going to be really close. And I thought that was incredible. Andrew Gillum, I think if he'd had two or three more months, might've been able to do it. But, and everyone was saying, everyone was so upset. If you draw, if you look at 2018 results above the Mason-Dixon and below, it's two different nights entirely. You know, this big surge of women that were elected, it's outside of the South primarily, right? It's going to take longer down here. Um, And what we also know is that if a woman, if a white woman in the South is liberal, right? Or Democrat. It's like, if they get out of that culture, they are so far left, right? They're smaller percentage, you know, but they're so far left. Mm -hmm. And often they are who gets covered or who talk to a journalist or who, right? Because the culture of these conservative Southern white women is to kind of stay in the background. Right. Yes. Um, and so it can skew the perceptions, but it's a real, you're not the first person who said to us like I, that, that is so counterintuitive about the ERA. And I, so I completely get it and it's understandable because there's just been nothing on it, but I can tell you as someone who's lived it, how real it is. And I have deep empathy for it, but, and then you can look at the numbers and we do have, you know, exit polling data from 1980 showing that, you know, the ERA was what was why these Southern white women voted for Reagan. Mm -hmm. The fact that he dropped it. Mm -hmm. We just don't talk about it. And maybe even the national discourse when that, when the national discourse talks about the gender gap, they talk about women being very democratic and men being more Republican. And that is true in the country. It's just not true in the South. And Angie mentioned earlier that, we often see these people doing national polls, but they're not breaking out the South. Often they don't have a representative sample of the South, so they don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, but when we do our polling, we do a representative sample of South, and we do find sometimes in many places the women are more conservative than the men. It's like a reverse gender gap here in the South. And so from our perspective, when you're looking at the Electoral College map, you're seeing a lot of Southern women who will vote for a Republican candidate while the nation keeps talking about a gender gap that women favor the Democratic Party. So it's very confusing. 
Right. No, I can, <laughs> I can absolutely see that. And when the ERA dies, this is another piece of it. When the ERA doesn't make it, the Southern, the feminists, the feminists in the Democratic Party, you know, they really don't want to accept that 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 the anti you know feminists killed it right it's just very painful for them it came out of nowhere when reagan wins they don't want to believe it's because they dropped the era they keep saying it's you know it's his economic policies and this and that because it's like they inform policy they just it's like very hard to live in a world in which you think that's what happened and they kind of go underground and are really quiet Right. Particularly after they convinced the party to put Geraldine Farrar on the ticket in 84. And that that is a, a double loss. And in fact, you know, Southern women vote for Reagan even higher numbers, you know, the second time around. And so it doesn't get told. And it doesn't get seen as the bridge between the racial effort, racialized efforts of the Southern strategy and the religious efforts of the GOP, because it is the bridge. Um, because it was so painful, you know, a lot of the feminists involved in it just kind of dropped out of the political scene, you know, and they came back, a lot of them in 2016 and were active again. And that has been, of course, doubly, um, you know, another blow. Obviously. Yeah. Well, that is, that is fascinating stuff. Um, I think we're going to wind up there. And I'm going to mention that the book is called The Long Southern Strategy, and the authors are Angie Maxwell and Todd Shields. It's a great holiday gift. So <laughs> thank you both thank for you joining so much. in the Nexus. All right. And we will be right back. It's the end of the decade, so it's time to do a little unofficial review. How did this one shape up? totally depends on how you view the world politically. If you're a Democrat, you're probably in agony right now that there have been nearly three years of Donald Trump, and it appears that there is at least one more, perhaps five more to go. That's another half decade of the Trump train. Regulations are becoming a thing of the past. The government is being reshaped, if not destroyed, and environmental protections are out the window. What has happened to our alliances abroad, you'd say, among many, many other things. If you're a Republican, in your mind, order has been restored, the planets have once again aligned properly, and why couldn't those damn Democrats just shut up about impeachment once and for all? Earlier in the decade, that is, for the first seven years of it, you had to put up with President Obama and what you saw as an overly regulated marketplace, racial strife, jobs going overseas, and a president you might have thought was bringing hope and change, but in your mind, little changed. The rich got richer, and you were just doing more to stay in place. At least now you got a tax cut. One thing hopefully all can agree on, but won't, is that the economy this decade is in much better shape than it was 10 years ago at this time. It was pretty gloomy in December 2009 when the economy was technically in the first months of recovery, but it sure didn't feel like it. State governments across the world were being propped up from bankruptcy by the stimulus money, and the unemployment rate was at or around 10%. Since then, the stimulus is long forgotten, unemployment is at a 50-year low of 3.5%, 
and GDP has been growing steadily all decade long. It's been a decade of true recovery since the Great Recession, and we should take time to celebrate that. Of course, there are too many people working multiple jobs, and there is an income inequality in this country that seems sometimes impossible to address. There's a long way to go, but I'd rather be where we are economically now than where we were at the beginning of the decade. Many would disagree with me, however, and in the 2010s, you had an easier way than ever before to do just that. I call the span of 10 years the Facebook decade. It was the first full decade of social media, and it will take decades more to understand the depth of how influential this medium has been on our world. Before, you had friends, maybe a handful, maybe a couple dozen, but probably not more than 100 people. During the Facebook decade, you were expected to have as many friends as possible, at least a few hundred, and if you so desired, up to 5,000 people. 5,000 people reading your words and seeing your photos and sharing actual friendship with? That's pretty hard to believe and sounds too good to be true. And for the most part, it is. Something that seems so promising, so life-expanding for the most part, at the start of the decade now seems like an addiction at this point, akin to drinking lots of coffee or smoking cigarettes. You don't leave Facebook or its sinister cousin Instagram for fear of missing out on something or because you've made these so-called friendships and you have no other way to communicate with them except through Facebook Messenger. If you leave these mediums, people forget about you and you're left with the close friends and family members you started out with. Facebook is now the way we get news, with more than 50% of people saying it is the way they learned about what's happening in the world. It's no secret why the Russians have gotten their tentacles into Facebook. It's the way to influence opinion. Unlike legitimate news sources, Facebook cavalierly says it has no interest in stopping or policing fake news or ads. And that's why conspiracy theories that were on the lunatic fringe in the past are center stage now and why congressmen and senators routinely quote them in pursuit of smearing Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and many others. Facebook, Twitter, and platforms like it have allowed the crazy to become popular. On a positive note, I have met many amazing people through Facebook that I never would have known in the decade prior. I'm one of those people that add friends of friends or people you might know, and I'm the better for it. If people are in different cities and I am traveling to those places, I make it a point to try and meet Facebook friends who matter to me and turn them into, quote, real friends. My life has been enriched because of these associations. If there is anything that has changed the world in the 2010s, it is Facebook. So, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. The facts of life. So long, 2010s. Let's hope the 2020s are once again the roaring 20s of a century ago. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Production assistance by Ian Heald. If you like this podcast, please share it far and wide and leave a ranking too. We'll see you next time and be well. Thank you.